Okay, we're going to kick off now. Uh, so hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest Budget Byte webinar at ODI. My name is Nick Gates, and I'm a program manager at Public Digital, a digital transformation consultancy based in London. There, I manage our partnership with ODI, uh, who is a leading global affairs think tank based in London, uh, and the organizers of this webinar as the co-lead of the Digital Public Finance Hub. The Digital Public Finance Hub is a joint initiative between ODI and Public Digital, funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This is our third webinar in this series through the Hub, which is looking more in-depth at some of the frontier topics and issues in public financial management in the digital era. In our last webinar, uh, we discussed the value of agile procurement and its critical role in digital transformation of government, uh, as well as how the process of procurement itself is becoming more digital. This time around, we'll be looking at digital payments systems and specifically this idea of how we can make those payment systems smarter. But what do we mean by smarter digital payment systems? One of the primary ways that we at the Hub are thinking about evaluating digital systems payments effectiveness is through their speed and efficiency, or how fast they can get money out the door and how they can do so in a way that probably supports public spending priorities. When we talk about those payment systems becoming smarter then, um, we really just creating conditions, technological or otherwise, for more rapid disbursement of payments once certain milestones or triggers have been hit in the system. And those payments can be unconditional or conditions-based. That's the point we'll revisit later. Um, so in this view, smart payments are just another extension of the paradigm around instant payments, but with a degree of uh, automation, a much higher one. That's the promise at least. Um, as we'll discuss today, digital payments practitioners probably have a long way to go uh, as a community in terms of making sure that digital payment systems are equitable and that the disbursement payment leads to intended outcomes for both governments and their citizens. Today's webinar will focus on three case study presentations to tease out different examples of how payment systems are being designed and becoming smarter, as well as what the applicable lessons we might learn from those systems are. Um, but before we dive into those presentations, I thought it would be worth laying out just a little bit more context than we usually do in these webinar intros in order to give the attendees a sense of what the current payments landscape looks like. As you might imagine from our event description, uh, one of the most important use cases for digital payment systems is welfare or the delivery of benefits. Historically, this has been one of the most well-documented areas where governments are making use of payment systems what we refer to as government-to-person or G2P payments. Welfare on its own has huge implications for public expenditure, and especially when those systems might become automated. For example, recent data from the World Bank found that across a sample of 46 developing countries, on average, they were spending 1.5% of their GDP on social assistance payments, 3.6% on pensions, and 7.3% on public wages. In some cases, those expenditures were as high as 5.3, 12.4, and 14.1% respectively. Seen together, these expenditures across all categories could be as high as 27% in some countries, especially developing countries, accounting for a huge percentage of all public spending and having a significant impact on public policy priorities. This is all happening in the context of increasing digitalization of payment systems. For example, according to a recent report from Africanenda, there are, as of 2022, 32 instant payment systems which have been deployed across that continent alone, and 17 with, uh, that are in early development stages. 
more broadly across the rest of the globe, the World Bank indicates that dozens of countries are in the process of scaling up their digital infrastructure for GDP payments. And um, more than uh, 150 countries or subnational authorities are building digital payments infrastructure as part of a digital infrastructure, digital public infrastructure or uh, DPI approach. Looking forward to the future, it is clear that the DPI and G2P payments agendas are going to continue to converge and they will have a huge impact on public spending. As I highlighted, this will be particularly true for social protection and welfare, which are some of the biggest use cases for those payments. However, governments are also going to need to respond to multiple crises in the coming years, the so-called poly crisis, um, which will put a huge um, burden on the public uh, spending. The poly crisis is creating compounding effects from the impact of COVID-19, geopolitical turmoil in Europe, the Middle East, and possibly even Asia, the cost of living crisis, uh, as well as the climate and energy crises. Governments are going to need to be able to respond and to respond quickly to mobilize public finance and respond to these events if and when they happen. Government-backed payments, particularly G2P payments, will be critical in preparing for and mitigating the worst effects of what is. Without much further ado, uh, I'm going to turn it over our, to our panelists to give you an overview of what governments are doing, what we can learn from these examples, and some early ideas on what these increasingly smarter payment systems might mean for public finance. Our first presenters will be uh, Prashant Chandramuran and Anant Jayant Natu from the EGA Foundation and Microsafe Consulting, respectively. Prashant is an Associate Director, uh, Program Manager for the Public Financial Management Mission at the EGA Foundation, where he has worked extensively in urban service delivery, urban development, livelihoods, water supply and sanitation, and leads their public financial management work, including IFIX and the use of payments in Indian states like Odisha. Anand, an associate partner at Microsave, where he manages the Gates-funded project to improve the state's capacity in delivering uh, social goods by leveraging digital tools, as well as projects focused on advisory support to the government across livelihoods, data governance, and program strategy. He's also heading their payments work in Odisha. Um, Anand, I'd like you to kick us off. Uh, the framing question for this webinar was, what could the role of smarter payments be? and strengthening G2P payments infrastructure. Um, as you kick off discussing the work that eGov and Microsafe have done together, it would be worth reflecting on uh, how the work came together and why we're interested in smart payment systems at all. Um, but looking forward to hearing what you all did in Odisha. Over to you. Uh, thanks, Nick, for uh, such a succinct uh, summary and insightful one. Uh, I just wanted to check if my screen is visible. Yes. Yeah, so uh, just a quick word about uh, MSC before I dive into uh, the questions that <clears throat> Nick has uh, put forth. So uh, MSC is a global consulting firm. Uh, we deliver on projects that focus on economic, social, and financial inclusion. Uh, we have completed just about 25 years, and we have offices across the world and projects in 68 developing countries. And we have been at the center of digital finance revolution since its early days uh, in the early noughties. Uh, now, coming to the specific questions that you have asked, Nick, uh, one is on the role of smarter payments in strengthening the G2B, uh, G2P payment infrastructure. Uh, then how did the work in Odisha come about? And then finally, on why should we be interested um, in, in, in smart payments at all? 
so I will first uh, take the third question, uh, which is why should we be interested in the smart payments uh, system at all? Now, uh, so so I think first of all we need to understand what is what problems does this uh, digital tool called smart payment really solves? Now, of the many problems that the state faces, uh, unspent balances and the unpaid dues are the two most common problems on the expenditure side, and they directly impact the efficiency and the quality of government schemes and the projects. Now, I put three examples there. Um, in each of these cases, we see that the unspent balances or the unpaid dues have run into billions, uh, which, which is a big deterrent even for private players to work with the government. Uh, I'll not delve too much into these examples. Uh, moving ahead, so essentially uh, what we see happening here is that if we were to look at the uh, G2P, the government to people payment life cycle, we should be able to tease out some underlying reasons for these issues of uh, unspent balances and the unpaid dues. Uh, and a smart payment solutioning framework can be used to devise solution. Now, just quickly, I'll take half a minute to sort of explain this. So if you look at the entire payment life cycle for a G2P payments, there are essentially six stages. Uh, in the condition stage, we often see that there is an inconsistent interpretation of rule. In the compliance stage, we see that there are multiple sources of truth. So there is no one source of truth which one could bank on. Uh, then there is a issue with inspection. There are parallel manual interventions that happen. Uh, there is high discretion to pay exercise during calculation and entitlement. During authorization, there is lack of observability and traceability of events. And then we see that there is limited visibility on the fund availability, which leads to de uh, the delay in the decision to pay. So because of these, and, and, and so what we are trying to do is to solve for these problems that I've mentioned, the six stages and the problems and the challenges that we face by using a smart payment a solutioning framework, and for which we focus on four building blocks. One is the single source of data, which ensures that the data registries is accessible to multiple users or applications and provides most up-to-date and authentic source of data. It should provide observability. It should allow for just-in-time uh, funding. Uh, and finally, it should demonopolize access. Uh, now, typically, a smart payment ecosystem will consist of a, a smart process, uh, a smart processing aspect, and a fund disbursement aspect. The smart processing will focus on uh, algorithmic uh, smart contracts, which are essentially algorithmic decision making based on certain set of rules. These are set of algorithms uh, coded coded as if this then that kind of statements. And then there is just in time fund release, which ensures that there is a pull based mechanism at play. Uh, so that the funds to the payee are directly transferred from the consolidated fund using various mechanisms. The one that we used in Odisha was the uh, treasury, the virtual treasury single account. Uh, now, when uh, uh, coming to your sex, so that's that, that's really why it's important. Uh, 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 that should be the interest in smart payment, right? Because it, it really solves these two problems of unspent balances and paid dues. Now, coming to your second question, Nick, which was more about... Um, uh, the role of smart payments or smarter payments in strengthening G2P payment infrastructure. And you had rightly mentioned uh, at the start of your uh, presentation that there, there are these many crises which are failing, uh, which are uh, which the governments are currently facing. And the governments have to ensure that their response is adequate. 
Now, what qualifies as an adequate response in face of these crises can take shape of programs where G2P transfers are contingent on a complex set of conditions and entitlements. These are not simple direct benefit transfers, but these could be works program of the kind that we'll explain in Mukta, uh, which are dependent on multiple conditions to pay and then multiple uh, uh, rules. Now, for that, again, a smart payment uh, kind of a function really helps. Now, uh, so so basically, Odisha, the, the program in Odisha, the Mukta was designed in response to, uh, to the need to ameliorate the conditions of the migrants who were returning home after the COVID-19 lockdown. And the objective was to create sustainable and climate resilient community assets. So that that again, sort of... Uh, uh, that that's that's how the smart uh, the smart payment framework can strengthen the G2P payment infrastructure. Now moving to the last question, which was about how did the work in Odisha come about? Uh, I'll just move to this slide. Uh, what we have seen in the last so this has almost taken about more than four years in coming. The first year was largely spent on advocacy, where we uh, socialized this idea with the finance department. We made finance department the anchor. Uh, and then we identify, and then it followed. Uh, we followed it up with about six months of diagnostics, uh, where uh, we looked at six line departments, and then finally chose uh, the housing and urban development departments Mukta scheme uh, for 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 uh, the pilot. Uh, then we spent almost two years, almost roughly one one and a half years, in designing the functional requirements for the Mukta scheme, and then uh, we sort of uh, are where we are which was about one last one year we were uh, with EGOV, we were uh, in the development phase and now uh, we are into the pilot phase. Uh, now I'll hand it over to uh, Prashant who will take you through the uh, the development phase and how it panned out. Over to you, Prashant. Yeah, thank you so much, Anand. And thank you, Nick, for sharing the context and sharing valuable insights. Uh, let me also pull up my screen quickly. Yeah, uh, just checking if everyone's able to view my screen. Yes. Great. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Prashant, and I represent the Eagle Foundation. I had their uh, PFM practice, and largely in the PFM practice, we're looking at you know uh, creating and implementing strategies for effective and efficient PFM. Um, EGOV as an organization, quickly, uh, we're over two decades old, founded by visionaries like Nandan and Srikant. And largely what our mission is, is to look at how technology can play a transformative role in uh, citizen service delivery. Of course, we do this by bringing governments, marketplace actors, civil society organizations together. Yeah, so... Uh, in the context of our journey, given that uh, this is what EGOV is set out to do, we look at uh, three strategic pillars, which is basically building the foundational DPI, which is the digital public infrastructure, enhancing building and enhancing state capacities and catalyzing market ecosystems. And with the support of our uh, founders, we've been able to drive the level of impact that you're able to see on screen. Um, we do this fundamentally through the digit platform, which is the foundational DPI that is applicable in multiple scenarios. And we do this to accelerate the achievement of SDGs. Now, given that uh, we're here in this webinar to look at uh, smart payments as an effective mechanism for uh, delivering G2P, G2P benefits effectively, um, here's a little bit around our own uh, interpretation of what smart contracting or smart payments actually is, right? So smart contracting in that sense, like Anant also touched upon a little bit, is these are um, self-executing agreements. These are agreements that 
trigger payment release once certain predefined rules and conditions are uh, met. Say, for example, if it's capital works, if there are certain milestones that have been met, like if the measurement uh, is good enough, if it has been validated, or if it is a social protection scheme, and then there are certain eligibility criteria that we are looking at, and that has been met. So then the contract executes automatically, and it triggers fund release. And uh, this largely is meant to minimize the discretion. So when there is evaluation happening, this is more of a standardized process because it is rules-based. And uh, given that the discretion is lowered, administrative burden on government employees also reduced, and there is prompt disbursement of fund to the intended recipients. So given that this is our interpretation and understanding of smart contracting and just-in-time smart payments, uh, I'd quickly like to touch a little bit on the Odisha story, right? Given that the the scheme itself um, is largely, uh, it was launched in 2021. Uh, it's a winner of the WRI Ross Prize for Cities. So it's largely looking at uh, building sustainable livelihoods for the urban poor while actually creating and maintaining community assets, right? Uh, the, the scheme also has a very strong uh, community-centric uh, focus. There are community-based organizations, largely women's self-help groups or uh, transgender communities who come together and they are empowered as the project contractors under the scheme. And uh, they drive the execution by bringing in wage seekers. So the beneficiaries, the primary beneficiaries of the scheme are uh, your wage seekers, the transgender women's self-help group, etc. Um, to actually have solid scheme success, right to execute the scheme with good success timely payments was something that was very critical but the challenge in getting to timely payments was that uh, service and fiscal information across the different actors in the system was missing so uh, we looked at wage seekers and cbos as the primary uh, recipients or beneficiaries right so for the wage seekers the biggest challenge was getting the payment done a uh, payment on time for the work that they have done for the community-based organizations, the biggest challenge was actually to be able to uh, track payments. What happened was uh, community the, the CBO members would actually have to go to the ULBs physically, to the urban local bodies or the local government offices physically to uh, have a check on what is the status of payments. Now, you know that uh, timely payments is critical for uh, continued contributions of the wage seekers as well as the women uh, self-help groups under the scheme. Um, for the urban local body stuff themselves, the biggest challenge actually came around visibility on what is happening on the ground. So with project execution, where were the CBOs and the wage seekers? And also the process of validating all the payment criteria. These are conditional cash transfers, like Anant mentioned. So validating the criteria like attendance or measurement, that itself was a cumbersome process. And these are also staff who contribute to multiple other schemes. So there is only limited bandwidth at any given point in time. Uh, for the parent department, which is the housing and urban development department, the challenge was how do they track scheme uh, administration? How do they track scheme progress? Are the wage seekers getting paid on time? Are the CBOs getting paid on time? So this was a key issue for them. And the finance department who MSC, colleagues at MSC have worked with, for them, the major challenge was around effective cash management. Given that they only had visibility at the last moment when the bills would hit them, how can they actually plan for cash better? So to solve for 
all these stakeholders and the challenges that we've seen, uh, MuktaSoft was developed. This is basically uh, the digit platforms end-to-end -end contracting capability uh, application. This gives the key stakeholders from uh, the Housing Urban Development Department, the ULB staff, the CBOs, complete real-time visibility on project administration, project planning, project uh, execution, starting from the contract stage all the way to measurement, attendance, et cetera, and finally up to creating the bills. Now, uh, how smart contracting and smart payments actually works here is um, there are predefined rules, conditions, milestones, et cetera, that are set in the system. And once these are achieved, which actually happens with both the measurement data coming in of the public works that has been built and the attendance data coming in. So once these conditions have been achieved, the system actually triggers an automatic bill that goes to the state's IFMS. And this is through the IFX platform that we've developed. Here, what happens is uh, the finance department now has real-time data on what are the bills that have to be processed. And the Housing and Urban Development Department can actually look at the dashboard that you see here on how the scheme uh, progress is looking like. So the rules, the conditions to pay are scrutinized, validated, approved, and set in the system. And once they're achieved, the payment is actually algorithmic. So it happens automatically. Like I said, the bill gets created and then is passed to the IFMS. Given that, uh, we're, what, four months roughly into this uh, execution, we're seeing actually very promising early signs. Um, it was quite a long drawn process in terms of payment timelines. We've been able to reduce it roughly to about 80-85%. Uh, we've done this while delivering more than $25,000 worth of benefits to largely 2,000 plus wage seekers and uh, community-based organization members. The promising signs from the pilot, which was in two cities, has actually uh, compelled the department to grow this footprint to about 25 cities. There are a total of 115 cities in Odisha. So it puts that in context. Uh, like I said earlier, we largely care about capacity of the state to own and manage their uh, transformation, digital transformation journeys. So we have been training over 3000 plus uh, community-based organization members. You will be staff themselves to actually use the system uh, in, a, in the right manner. Very quickly, uh, what I'd like to sort of touch base upon is, I mean, no uh, reflection journey is complete without what we learned and what are the opportunities for uh, others who are looking to implement similar uh, approaches. Your adoption will start slow, and that is fine because there's initial confidence that uh, people are placing in the system, the trust that the system will execute, because sometimes you almost always see that there is a parallel paper trail, even when digital systems are in use. But once it uh, builds trust, which is largely on the efficacy and efficiency of the system, people will start using it and you'll see a good spike in adoption. This is what we've noticed from this journey. Um, I cannot stress on this enough, have a robust change management plan because uh, there will be a lot of questions that uh, 
stakeholders would come back to you with, uh, for example, uh, we chose to have only uh, projects that haven't started execution yet to be onboarded onto the system and use the technology. And this was done because uh, any projects that are on the fly in execution, you will have to deal with a lot more edge cases. So make sure that your plan incorporates the various things that you need to look at to facilitate a smooth shift and actually communicate this actively to all the stakeholders and get them aligned. Uh, the third one is governments don't really have to do it all alone. Uh, the willingness to collaborate, the willingness to leverage collective action for impact is something that is very critical. Uh, we had excellent interest from the housing and the finance departments in Odisha, MSE and us. So that is why we were able to go to a successful implementation in a very uh, quick span of time. And uh, lastly, capacity building is critical. You do have to you have to look at early continuous handholding. Uh, we actually went one layer above, which was to include some of these stakeholders like the CBOs, like the ULB stuff in the design process itself. So every uh, month they would know exactly what are the what is the system going to look like and what are the features that they are going to get, which meant that by the time it was actually live, it was all about using it for their own data and start uh, scheme execution on the system itself without many, much of a teething trouble. Um, as I close, I'd like to urge others to consider this approach for uh, effective G2P benefit delivery. The advantages are many, but I'd like to touch upon three major ones, which is standardizing the evaluation process, the validation process helps in removing discretionary power, discretionary actions, and it brings a lot more accountability into the system. The next one is largely around how you could leverage data from these systems to actually drive better scheme outcomes, but at the same time also look at validation as a service for uh, social protection schemes and reduce inclusion, exclusion, and accuracies that you generally see in uh, these kind of uh, schemes or programs. And uh, to close, with, I mean, citizens are at the heart of all things that governments do. So a smart payment approach can actually look at building more public trust, better confidence, and high levels of satisfaction in government services. Uh, this can also actually be used for uh, disaster responses, and at the same time, even proactively before disasters. For example, the state of Odisha is prone to cyclones a lot. So could we actually think about fund disbursement or uh, you know, uh, aid or relief material being sent in a proactive manner as soon as the emergency or you know the prediction comes in this is uh large this has largely been our journey and it's still early days we look forward to continuing and finding out more learnings from the process thank you nick back to you thank you prashant um a fascinating presentation and a really kind of uh innovative project that we wanted to showcase up front um but there are a range of projects that are doing this in very different ways. And so I think the case studies that we want to tease out are, are going to take a very comparative perspective. Um, so with that in mind, our next presentation is going to be from uh, Universal Credit, uh, which is a, a welfare program that's been set up in the UK for many years. Um, with us, we have Gareth Claridge, um, who's going to talk about the UK's work on that program, um, which is a welfare program that replaces six monthly benefits in the UK with a single conditions-based monthly payment. Um, and which constitutes the biggest transformation of the welfare state in the UK in 60 years. 
Um, how's the department for work and pensions? Gareth is a lead product manager in the department overseeing the work on universal credit. Since 2016, Gareth has led the development and introduction of the program and its development through multiple iterations. And for the last few years in particular, he has been responsible for calculating and paying out the benefit in practice. Um, Gareth, over to you. Thank you. Uh, I assume you can hear me and see my slides. So in uh, in 2012, the Welfare Reform Act was passed. Uh, it legislated to replace six existing benefits with one new benefit. So out went housing benefit administered by local authorities, working tax credit and child tax credit administered by Financial Revenue and Customs, and employment support, income support and job seekers allowance um, administered by the Department of Work and Pensions. And in came universal credit. It was intended to be a very different kind of benefit. So no posting pages and pages of paper applications to different government departments, no annual assessments and yearly reconciliation, and no arbitrary limits on how much you could earn. The think tank paper that first popularized the idea called it dynamic benefits, which to be honest is pretty much the same as smart payments, I think. Uh, it had policy objectives. It was going to further incentivize and encourage households and families to move into work and increase the amount of work they do, basically by being responsive to the amount people earn in real time. Smarter payments can be more responsive. It also had administrative objectives to automate processes and maximize self-service to reduce the scope of fraud, error, and overpayments. It was going to be one benefit that knows your circumstances each month and pays you the exact amount you need for that month. Much easier for the citizen and much easier for the state. Without technology, that sort of policy transformation just wouldn't have been possible. As uh, was said in the previous presentation, we, we grew slowly as well. We started with one job centre in Sutton, just south of London in 2014. What we put live then was a service that did deliver the new policy, but in a, in a very manual way. To scale outside that one office, we had to automate a lot more. So when I joined in 2014, we had 40,000 claimants. And within a few years, we'd rolled out to the whole country with 2 million claimants. We'd ironed out the teething problems. And almost everyone got paid in full and on time in the first month. We'd built an in-house and delivery team and a service capable of continuously improving while implementing the latest government policy changes. So this is where we're at now. 6 million people in the UK claim universal credit. We do about 400,000 calculations a day and pay out 42 billion pounds a year. Imagine 400,000 calculations being done by hand. I mean, that's just not possible. There aren't enough advocacies in the country. But with technology, it, it is possible. Almost all of these calculations are automated with monthly awards calculated and payments queued each night between midnight and the start of the next working day. The technology that does that is what has enabled us to implement a policy of paying people exactly what they need in real time. For example, about half of our claimants are in work. We get their earnings automatically. Employers report to HMRC and HMRC pass that information on to us. We can then adjust their award to consider fluctuation. So if you're offered extra hours over Christmas, you don't have to worry about whether that takes you over some arbitrary limit. Universal Credit will automatically adjust your award according to how much you've earned that month. There are no cliff edges and no perverse incentives. Being able to automatically calculate and pay also means we can get money out to claimants in an emergency. If your boiler breaks in the middle of winter, you can apply for an advance of your next payment. We can immediately calculate what that's likely to be and pay it out to you. You can have the money in your bank account that day 
and your future payments can then automatically be adjusted to repay the advance. This sort of dynamic benefit is only possible because of the technology underpinning implementation. We've seen other benefits as well. Uh, it's obviously far easier to run one system than six separate ones. Part of the business case was reducing administrative overhead of the welfare state, which we've more than met. Allowing computers to do what computers do best frees up our staff to do what humans do best. And for us, that's coaching claimants to help them get back into work. A system with automated calculation and payment is also much more resistant to sudden shocks. I put this graph back up again, just so I can talk about that almost vertical line in the middle of it. During COVID, we added about 2 million claimants in the space of a couple of months. And because a lot of the payment critical processing we do is automated, we didn't need to scramble around to find twice the number of staff. We had to take dif difficult decisions, but our payment rates held up. We got the money to the extra 2 million people who had lost their other sources of income. We even temporarily added £20 a week to the award almost as soon as it was announced by the Chancellor. The fact that we can tailor the award every month to your circumstances means that we avoid uh, some of the problems of legacy benefits of having to reconcile at the end of the year when your circumstances weren't quite what you expected them to be. We can pay you based on what you actually earned, not what you thought you might be earning all this when you did your tax return. So what have we learned when implementing universal credit? Well, this sort of policy transformation is only possible when the service is designed holistically with policy professionals working with product people and software engineers working with operational delivery experts in truly multidisciplinary teams. I've obviously given a very high level overview, but combining six benefits into one has proved almost complex. In fact, too complex to deliver without significant reliance on automated calculation and payment. And again, as the presentation earlier said, that requires clear policy. You need to be clear about which parts of the process are prescribed in a calculation and, and therefore should be done by automatically by a computer and which are discretionary and therefore should be done by a human. And we also don't want universal credit to be seen as some sort of scary algorithm which decides to get to live on. We want the calculation of your all to be based on what you've told us. So we have produced this statement, which, which explains what you're getting. It's related to what you've told us. We want you to be able to challenge where you think we've made a mistake and have a human review the case. So automation and humans working together. So to achieve the biggest transformation of the welfare state in 60 years, as the intro said, we needed to start small. We, we learned in live paying real money to real people. And as we learned, we could automate more and more of the system which then in turn enabled us to scale up and learn more. The cycle of learning kind of carries on throughout the history of UC. Technology changes, people's needs change, government policy changes. But in Universal Credit, we have built a dynamic benefit, a smarter payment system capable of responding to those changes. Thank you. I'll stop this scrolling through endlessly now. Thank you, Gareth. Um, fascinating presentation uh, and a real uh, interesting demonstration of how uh, these types of payment systems can can work at scale. Um, I also think we see clearly kind of that dimension of automation that's kind of at the the heart of uh, of smarter payments. Um, but there's also some some tension and some risks in there, which we'll unpack later. Um, our final case study will be uh, a little bit of a different perspective, uh, coming from the perspective of uh, a civil society organization or an implementing partner. Uh, and we'll be hearing from Andres Parado at uh, Give Directly. Uh, Andres is going to talk about their work on supporting government-backed digital payments uh, uh, as an organization, showcasing, 
pacing the technical assistance efforts they supported in Nigeria and Mozambique. Hmm. Andres is the senior manager of technology advisory at GiveDirectly. Uh, he partners with stakeholders like governments to uh, uh, use systems that target and deliver social cash transfers at scale. Uh, and he previously headed up their research team, um, working on feeding evidence into program design and implementation across many countries. Um, Andres, thank you for joining us and really looking forward to your remarks. Take it away. Thanks so much, Nick. Today, I want to focus on basically two things. First, I want to talk about two case studies, one of them in Nigeria and Mozambique, about how we implemented end-to-end -end, um, targeting and delivery of cash transfers. And then a related work stream that is about our technology advisory wing, which is really about trying to work with governments in the countries where we operate to improve the systems that they're using based on the lessons learned about the technology and about the processes that we've, we've carried out over the years. So to give a little bit of, of background about Give Directly, we are an international nonprofit organization that works specifically on delivering unconditional cash transfers. Uh, we're one of the fastest growing international NGOs, and so far we've reached about 1.48 million recipients and delivered more than $600 million in funds. We partner closely with international organizations like the World Bank, USAID, but also other organizations like Google.org. And of course, we partner closely with the governments in the countries where we operate. To give you a sense of, of our scope, we are currently in 11 countries. Most of them are in Sub-Saharan Africa and include uh, Nigeria, Mozambique, Rwanda, and Malawi. We also have operations in Morocco. We have done work in, in Yemen, and we have several programs in the, in the United States as well that started since the pandemic. And what I wanna focus on today is our portfolio on, on weather-related events, more specifically our flood response work. Um, as I mentioned in, in Nigeria and Mozambique. And to frame the, the question a little bit, um, when a natural disaster hits, uh, we think that traditional approaches uh, to finding people in need can be, can be slow and difficult. So a disaster like a flood, for example, hits and the logistics of organizing a response, traditional, traditionally done in kind is hard. Um, sometimes there might be issues with infrastructure to reaching people, organizing people who you know, respond to the emergency and might themselves have been affected by floods, it's it's cumbersome. And so our response to something like that is um, what we call mobile aid, which is a program model that really leverages technology for end-to-end -end delivery of cash transfers. And it has essentially three main components. One of them is targeting, the other one is enrollment, and the last one is, is delivery. Uh, on the target side, we use all sources of data that are available in order to do poverty assessments and also to do predictions of things like when a flood is gonna hit. We use satellite imagery to figure out where, where houses are located with respect to things like rivers, for example, or we also use this type of data to do poverty assessments based on the materials of the roof and based on sort of the, the latest technology in machine learning. That is also often combined with a phone metadata and government databases, phone metadata, again, to try to do predictions of who are the, the most people in need in these particular sectors. And in this, we collaborate closely with researchers who are working at the, at the cutting edge of, of poverty prediction algorithms. Once we do this poverty assessment, then we we use various technology platforms for enrollment. <clears throat> Sorry, for enrollment, we use USSD 
um, which le leverages basically the phone network. Uh, we also use SMS and call center hotlines to be able to enroll people without boots in the ground. And then once people are enrolled, we uh, remotely verify identities using digital ID systems. And we ultimately pay in most countries using payment aggregators that allows us to create processes that are centralized and are responsive to various needs across all the countries where, where we work. Um, I, I wanna emphasize one additional aspect here that's not explicitly in, in the slides and is that at the center of all of this technology is a, is a centralized database uh, in Salesforce that automates processes for what are the types of poverty assessments that can actually lead to payments. So basically feeding data from the targeting algorithms um, and then the, the ID databases and the enrollment surveys to calculate automatically in the back end who is uh, who's gonna receive a payment at the end based on pre-coded uh, pre surveys. And so there, the, the two case studies that I wanna talk about both are about a response to floods. The one in Nigeria is a response uh, to floods a couple of months after the flood actually happens. And the second one in Mozambique is about what we call anticipatory action, which is really where we try to predict exactly the date where the flood is going to hit. And then based on some triggers that we set up on our how, how accurate the prediction we think is going to be, the payments are dispersed a couple of days before the actual flood hits so that people have enough time to um, to kind of do whatever they need with their assets to protect them and, and to use the money as they need before they, the flood actually hits. So talking a, a bit about the, the Nigeria case in 2022, we sent around 6,000, um, we sent a, around 6,000 transfers to individuals in, in Kogi state. And this is really, uh, Nigeria is the second country with the highest number of people living in poverty who are affected by floods after, after India. Uh, and so this is a yearly occurrence that affects millions of people in, in the country. We did this pilot to try to try it out our machine, le machine learning based algorithm for flood risks and also overlay that with uh, poverty maps to identify people who are in most need in the country. This also highlights our, our government partnerships. We did this with the collaboration of the Nigeria Social Safety Net Coordinating Office, uh, NASCO, um, who provide us that provide us data for the registry to verify that the, the people we were enrolling were indeed the, the people that we wanted to enroll. We provided around 240 USD for flood relief, and we deliver in total about $1.9 million. And this, this was really an end-to-end -end enrollment. Um, one thing to note here is that in several countries where we do this type of work, like Nigeria, phone penetration is, is usually low. So one of the things that we do is proactively, we work with the places where our forecasts say are the ones that are most likely to receive floods. Uh, we do SIM registrations where we collaborate with local governments so that SIMs are registered to people's names. Um, and then once the disaster either hits or is about to hit based on flood predictions, then people are already, um, they're, they're already well positioned to use these SIMs to register into the programs. Here, the, the payments were triggered a couple of months after the, the disaster hits. And there were some challenges, like there are other, there are challenges in all of our work, including some, some missing data that we have to verify with, uh, with other sources outside of, uh, of this NASCO registry. 
The other case study that I want to highlight is the one in Mozambique. Um, this is where we piloted our first anticipatory cash transfer program um, to strengthen responses to climate-related events during the 2023 flood season. This is really the first time that we have paid based on a specific prediction of, of flooding happening in the country. Uh, one thing to note here is that we work very closely with Google.arc that created an, uh, an algorithm based on 50 years of historical data that was collected by the government in Mozambique. Um, and in this scenario, we actually deliver around $225 to about 4,000 recipients three days before the predicted floods. One thing to note here is that the floods didn't actually materialize in the specific areas where we where we predicted. Part of that is because um, while the algor algorithm was good at um, at predicting some things like increasing in num amount of water going into the rivers and things of that nature, we we believe that we need to do some more work to work with community-based organizations to understand more what the predictions mean for, for the ground, but also to design triggers in a way that use a wider set of, uh, of data. And uh, we're working closely to basically try a second version of this pilot where we use a more uh, comprehensive understanding of, of these types of triggers. Um, on the other hand, we did actually set up the infrastructure to pay three days before the flood hit. So people had had uh, cash in hand before they were supposed to, it was supposed to be a flood. So that infrastructure was set up and we're very confident in our ability to, to create these types of systems, both in Mozambique and in other types of, um, in other types of settings. So this is work that we, that we continue doing. And one thing to highlight is that it, this is what we consider the range of things that are, that are possible in emergency response. We're, still kind of pushing the envelope on, on, on innovation. And of course, this is in addition to our more traditional programs that are geared towards poverty alleviation. But given that this is possible at scale and that we can do end-to-end -end enrollment and payment disbursement with, uh, with a lot of technology tools, uh, our next step has been to think about how we can partner with governments so that we help them think about the kinds of issues that are raised in, in this context when we try to do this type of work. And this is really where our working technology advisory is, is born. And it has two key strategic pillars. One of them is working on concrete tech improvement projects. Uh, and the other one is engaging in conversations on digital public infrastructure and how we might be able to leverage for faster delivery of payments. And on concrete tech improvement projects without without going into the into the weeds is really finding a demand driven demand driven project that the government is working on things like automating uh, business processes in the MIS system or improving national registries so that they're more dynamic and show us showcase the poverty status of people living in the country on a more up-to-date basis and also things like automating payment processes and connecting to to payment portals Many of the countries where we work is still do um, manual payments. And so this is something that people are actively working on. And on the other hand, the same countries are engaging in the conversation on digital public infrastructure to make payments faster, to make national uh, digital IDs available to everybody. And so we see ourselves as having the potential to be first mover in this space because we face different constraints that government face and oftentimes that allows us to take up innovations and 
things like digital public infrastructure faster. And as we learn about this, this emerging infrastructure, we can share the learnings with our, our government partners. And that is captured um, in this in this system where you can see <laughs> kind of how, how we're thinking about it. As we the give directly technology stack is connected to digital IDs, payment systems, and, and data exchange, that allows us to deliver unconditional cash transfers faster and possibly cheaper for both ourselves and our recipients. And at the same time, since we have strong relationships with the government who oftentimes deliver their own social cash transfer programs, we can facilitate the discussion on the things that are, we're learning about these systems. Let me stop here and hand it back to Nick. Thank you everybody very much. Thank you, Andres. Uh, I think a really fascinating um, snapshot of how this work is part of a broader ecosystem of, of technology and services um, and a really interesting perspective from the work that GiveDirectly Give is doing. Um, so last but not least, um, we have our final main panelist, uh, Christina Lowe from ODI, uh, who has kindly agreed to respond to some of our panelists' remarks and to provide some brief reflections on key lessons before we launch into a, a brief Q&A and wrap up. Um, Christy is a research associate at ODI who specializes in social protection. She's previously worked on a range of social policy topics with various international organizations and charities, including the World Bank, the World Food Program, UNHCR, and the Royal National Institute for Deaf People. Christy, we've heard a lot today about different perspectives and approaches for how governments are calculating and building GTP payments infrastructure in this new digital era, uh, which we all live in. Uh, and it's changed a lot over the last few years. Um, so I'm wondering what you think some of the key lessons and uh, are from what our panelists discussed and what the gaps uh, worth highlighting might be. Um, perhaps you could also reflect on on this trend of automated digital payment systems and what they might mean for public finance uh, more broadly. Over to you. Well, thanks, Nick, and thanks very much to all the speakers uh, for joining the discussion today. I think it's great to have uh, examples from such diverse contexts uh, for our conversation. I don't have much time, so I'm just going to go straight into my reflections. Uh, I think the speakers have highlighted quite extensively the, the potential benefits associated with uh, automated payments, so I'm not going to recap that. But as you said, Nick, uh, there are some kind of gaps and, and some risks that are worth uh, highlighting, I think. Um, and because whether payments are really smarter will depend on exactly how they, they tackle these, these kind of gaps and challenges. So maybe four, four main ones just to highlight today. Uh, first, it won't come as a surprise, but really we do have to bear in mind the risk of exclusion uh, because especially when we're talking about social protection or social assistance, people who have the least access to digital devices and who live in the places with the worst network connections are the ones who, who usually need the assistance the most. Uh, and unless very careful mitigating measures are put in place, technology does tend to amplify existing inequalities. Um, people who, who are most in need of, of social uh, protection are also those who are most likely to be missing from existing databases, uh, to not have a national ID, uh, maybe not have a data footprint to draw on in, in machine learning approaches. Um, and even if they do have uh, the kind of digital trail or they do have a digital payment account on paper, we have seen quite a lot of evidence of the most vulnerable social welfare, welfare recipients often having to rely on gatekeepers to actually withdraw their money or make use of their money. Um, and 
even if that isn't the case, we also know that these technical technological systems, of course, have flaws and they make mistakes as well. And they have system errors, too. And so automated payments basically are only going to be as good as the triggers that are designed um, to distribute them. The data that gets inputted uh, and to which the triggers are applied and also the surrounding digital infrastructure that enables the payment access. Um, so you know, that's one big area to highlight. The second area I think relates to accountability. And we talked a bit about the potential benefits in terms of accountability, but there are also some risks there because we may think that technology makes everything very transparent, uh, but the experience for a lot of service users is that smart payments can actually make pro processes much more opaque. Uh, we've all had experiences of where we kind of get locked out of an account or we're being told information that doesn't apply to us. And we do need to be able to speak to a real human being to rectify, rectify those issues. Um, that I think there's also a question of transparency in terms of um, technology sometimes, uh, and, and sometimes the, the companies providing the technology that's used, we don't want them to form a barrier between the, the citizen or the, or the service user and the government um, that citizens can hold to account. And, and it's not, uh, necessarily going to be the case, but it is a risk to, to bear in mind, I think. Uh, the third area um, is uh, around data protection, data privacy. Um, it's been mentioned a little bit. I know there's lots more we could say about this, but we do have to bear in mind that systems for smart payments use a lot of data. And in the case of social welfare, it's often very sensitive private data. Uh, we have seen significant concerns about that data of vulnerable service users being misused, um, whether intentionally or, or unintentionally by uh, some of the governments involved um, in social welfare delivery and the companies too. So uh, I think we're all aware of this, but I don't think enough is being done in some cases uh, to mitigate that risk. Uh, and then the final um, kind of area that I think is, is worth uh, thinking about so that we don't kind of fall into a trap that occasionally has arisen is the risk of prioritizing kind of quick tech fixes over systemic investments. So the kind of flashy smart payments agenda is uh, great if it's accompanying the wider investments in social welfare provision. Um, but that hasn't always been the case. And I think in some cases, smart payments are being used essentially as a pretext to just uh, slash welfare budgets um, and kind of give a shiny digital front to what is at its heart uh, an austerity agenda. Um, so you asked Nick what this means for kind of public expenditure in five or ten years, kind of what this with trends means. Well, I think obviously it's going to be depend on the context um, and how everything's being delivered, but when we're kind of calculating what we expect the impact on expenditure to be, uh, I think we need course, the thorough consideration of what the benefits and costs are going to be for the service provider. Um, but I hope that that cost benefit analysis will also think about the cost benefits from the service user perspective, because that's when we're thinking about the returns on any social investment, that's where it's really going to come from. Uh, and I mentioned those kind of indirect costs, the gatekeeper costs that certain service users, especially vulnerable service users, can experience. Um, also the need to think about whether the cost savings you're seeing on paper are um, more to do with uh, cutting the quality or quantity of payments being provided 
that's um, just something to bear in mind. And I do realize I am leaning, of course, more to the negative here, um, only to try and make sure that we have the full picture when we think about the lessons going forward. Uh, I can see that time is, is running short, so I'm just gonna close with a few uh, kind of lessons that we might wanna take away uh, to make sure that the digital payments that we all kind of see the promise in can really prove to be a smart investment. Um, the first one is to make sure that the overall goal is the right one. Uh, we've said it countless times, but technology is a means to an end, not an end in itself. Uh, we're trying to make payments smart in social welfare to make the lives of those people uh, accessing social welfare better. And so really the only way that you can develop smart payments then will be by making sure that your payment systems are based on the needs and the preferences that households actually receiving or applying for social welfare are expressing. So consulting um, those people in the design of your initiative, collecting their feedback and adapting your service based on their feedback um, with a special focus on the most marginalized uh, and remembering that not everything can be digital um, in, in social welfare. And not, not everyone can go digital as well. So you often are gonna need to complement your digital approach with uh, the kind of manual, um, what seems to, to some to be backward, but actually really fundamental part of social welfare delivery. Um, making sure that we have the legal framework, the governance mechanisms and the oversight to, um, to kind of mirror the technological investments. This isn't just a technical solution. There's a whole uh, host of, of thinking that needs to go into making sure that these smart payments produce the returns that we hope for. Um, and ultimately, I guess remembering that um, these are big systems involved, big infrastructure involved in, in um, realizing smart payments um, and they have massive potential, um, but we are talking about the most vulnerable groups in society. That, that's something unique, I think, to social protection that doesn't always get raised in other uh, aspects of government. And so designing and iterating systems to make sure they're actually smart for those people is uh, what I'm sure we're all uh, looking to achieve. I'll stop there, thank you. Thank you so much, Christy. Um, we are running quite short on time, um, so we don't have much time for audience question and answer, but uh, do take a look at the chat as I've seen some, some great questions being answered there um, via text. Um, and I think that this will kind of, you know, stand on its own. Uh, I think that was a great kind of summary of, of, of what we reflected on today. I did just want to get kind of uh, final kind of remarks or, or inputs um, um, from each of our panelists as we wrap up. So um, in 30 seconds or less, I, I would just encourage you to kind of respond to some of what Christie's discussed and um, discuss a little bit about uh, what you think the future of these systems might be. Um, Prashant, briefly over to you. Yeah, well, uh, thank you, Nick. I mean, Christy, those were uh, great points, really. And in fact, some of the things are something that we've also considered. For example, you ended with... Uh, you know, the legal frameworks that we have to consider. So looking at how this is in line still with the state financial regulations, looking at the data protection and privacy laws that are in the country, looking at digital identity laws that are in the country and ensuring that they're all applicable and followed in the process is something that we've been quite keen at doing and have been able to do. Uh, one more thing though, just from a humanitarian perspective is, uh, Christy mentioned uh, exclusion um, issues and exclusion errors. Yeah, that is very critical. And in addition, I think one of the things that we're also uh, urging ourselves to think about is, yeah, because the payments have been disbursed doesn't actually mean that they've received the money. So we have to still track and fix those. And at the same time, it's also about uh, are there enough cash out points that they can use to access the money that is in their bank accounts and pay for necessities 
again, like I said, very, uh, very much from a humanitarian perspective. So yeah, those are questions that keep us busy at the moment. Uh, Anand, you had your hand up. Over to you. Yeah, no, just just very quickly. So basically on this point about uh, the exclusion, uh, I want to be very clear about one thing that if you look at the boundaries of a smart payment process, um, uh, it really starts, it's it's pretty much a process re-engineering play to start with. So, so, so it really doesn't try to sort of, some of the exclusion questions do not really fall within the ambit of uh, smart payment as we say. And in fact, there are different sort of gradations in a smart payment system. You could have a basic system, you could have an ideal system, you could have a moon, moonshot system as well. And the basic system really tries to build upon some very manual processes and make the process smart. So that was one quick comment. The other thing is in its essence, uh, smart payment projects is about change management. We are trying to build in, so it's not just about some quick tech fixes, uh, but it's about creating, a, let's say, a single source of data, which is about creating a, a registry of users. It's about improving the program management system. It's about creating a decision engine. And then, of course, the just-in-time. So, of course, there, there are deeper aspects to smart payment, and some of these quick fixes won't really cut as as, as a smart payments project. I'll pause there. Thanks, Nick. Thank you so much, Nan. Uh Gareth, brief final remarks from you. Um, over to you. I mean, I can say um, so they're aware of all the different teams uh, user-centered. We try, we do a lot of research for our users, try and make sure that everything we do um, is, yeah, user-centered and means that we're not excluding people. Great. Thank you, Gareth. Um, Andres, brief final remarks from you as well. Sure. Thanks so much, Christy, for, for that overview. One thing to note is we, we take many of the issues that, that you raise very seriously at Give Directly. I'm happy at some point in another forum to talk extensively about data protection or about some of our other practices. I think one thing to note is that I see Give Directly as really being a, a hub for potential of innovation. So one, one thing that I want to highlight is, for example, we do often um, give out phones and SIM cards to people who are otherwise traditionally excluded, and our field officers work with them closely to uh, get them up to speed on how you how to use mobile money. So these types of practices and innovations that potentially practitioners who are not governments can can develop and work with governments to scale up is something that we're also thinking about um, as we ourselves manage our, our operations. So thank you so much. Thank you, Andres, and thank you to everyone on our panel. Um, we tried something out a little bit different with this one and tried to really let the presentations kind of uh, speak for themselves, but really appreciated Christy's remarks, even if we didn't get time for uh, a full discussion. I would just note that this uh, isn't uh, a close-ended discussion. We're hoping to keep the conversation going on digital payments and their relationship to public spending um, through the work that we're doing on the Digital Public Finance Hub. So if you're interested in uh, working on this topic with us or have any reflections you'd like to share, please do get in touch. Um, this is also part of a series, so we'll be continuing these webinars. Um, hopefully we'll have another one in February or March as well. Um, thank you so much to everyone who joined us today. Uh, we really appreciated your, your time and taking some time out of your day. Um, wherever you're coming from, uh, many thanks, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye, everyone. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, everyone.